Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello and welcome to Social Founder Stories, the podcast for everyone interested in inspirational stories about charities and social enterprises. I'm your host, Caroline Deal, and I'm the founder of two charities, the Media Trust and Together TV. I well know the joys and challenges of being a social founder. Social founder stories are about the amazing people who make social change happen. People who use their passions, skills, and entrepreneurial drive to make a difference and to make our world a better place. You'll hear about what makes social founders tick how they create impact, what they struggle with, and how they overcome their challenges, or not in some cases. Social Founder Stories is brought to you by the Social Founder Network, in association with Kiva, the Centre for Innovation in Voluntary Action. You can find out more about Kiva and support their innovative work at www.kiva.org.uk. So enjoy listening to Social Founder Stories. Send us lots of feedback. We'd love to keep in touch with you. Natasha Walter is founder of Women for Refugee Women, an influential charity providing support for refugee women seeking asylum in the UK. A feminist and human rights activist and author of books and media, Natasha became a founder director 13 years ago, almost by mistake, driven to create social change. In my interview with her, you will hear about the steps she took to set up the charity, the learnings along the way, and the important mix of services, voice, media and campaigning that underpin Women for Refugee Women and Natasha's leadership. And since we recorded this podcast, Natasha has stepped down as director handing over to Alphonsine Cabagabo, and Natasha is now Creative Projects Director. Hi, Natasha. Welcome to the Social Founders podcast. Hello. Thank you very much for having me. Really fantastic to have you with us. And tell us about your organisation. So I'm the founder of Women for Refugee Women, which is a charity working with refugee and asylum-seeking women here in the UK. And I set up the charity, oh, it's 13 years ago now. I can't believe it, Caroline. It's It's really 13 years. I know. It goes fast, doesn't it? It it does. It does go fast. And I think, um, you know, it's been an amazing journey. And it's, it's interesting to have this opportunity, I think, already for me to sort of look back and think about, you know... What, what an extraordinary journey it's been for me and for many of the other women involved. But maybe I'll just say something about what we are right now, what Women for Refugee Women does right now. That would be lovely. We're still quite small, but um, a decent size, I think, for an organisation working what, in this sort of area. When you say quite small, tell us in staff turnover. So there are eight of us now on staff, but we're not all full time. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have a small office in central London and we network with other organisations around the country. 
And we see about 100 refugee or asylum-seeking women coming here to our centre every Monday. And so that's really the core of the work that we do with refugee and asylum-seeking women. We work at the grassroots directly with refugee and asylum-seeking women, supporting them in the steps they're taking to rebuild their lives here in the UK. But above all, trying to work with them to enable them to build their confidence and skills to speak up and tell their stories in their own way. And that's really at the heart of what Women for Refugee Women does. It's all about enabling refugee women to speak for themselves and to be able to tell their stories then to different audiences, particularly to people that are not already aware of what women go through when they cross borders, when they're fleeing violence, in order to create more sympathy, more understanding, more awareness, and through that to create pressure for change. It's very important to me that Women for Refugee Women is not just providing services, just providing support. We are working with women facing enormous challenges, and I think we would be letting them down, betraying them, if we weren't working for system change which means we need to see a fairer asylum process in this country. We need to see more protection for refugee women. We need to ensure that every woman crossing borders has the chance for a fair hearing, the chance to rebuild her life. And I think this is really at the heart of what we do. We want to see genuine change. I think it seems like a really original mix, actually, of the services, for such a small charity, Mm. of the services that you're providing and the day-to-day contact with refugee women, but also the campaigning work and especially the media work that you're doing. Mm. And it's interesting what you were just saying about telling stories to people who don't normally hear those stories or understand them or feel sympathetic to them. Mm. Uh, I worked as a journalist in the media before I ever thought of actually... um, founding an organization or trying to work in this way and this is really you know why women for refugee women came into being because i was working as a journalist for the guardian and the observer and previously for the independent i was facing actually quite severe barriers in trying to get the stories that i wanted to tell about asylum seeking women even into those outlets the liberal press And when I did, I often felt quite downcast about the impact of those stories. So the real trigger for me was about um, 13, 14 years ago when I was working. I had this story I wanted to write, this piece I wanted to write for The Observer where I was working at the time Mm. about asylum-seeking women who were being left destitute with no means of support in the UK. And... I knew I wanted to tell these the stories of these women and I got particularly close. It was really an encounter that really shook me up to one particular woman as I was working on this article. Her name was Angelique and she'd come from the Democratic Republic of the Congo and I think we've all heard the stories coming out of DRC. I mean, it's a place of, where there's been so much violence and so much upheaval 
And I think we often lose sight of the impact of that on individual mm. um, people, particularly individual women. And Angelique's father had been a, a politician and... Um, during the part of the Civil War, her family's house was targeted because of her father. And she, as a young woman, had seen um, the rebels coming to her compound, the family house, her family home burning before her eyes. She'd seen her parents lying dead on the ground. And she herself was not killed. She was a, you know, attractive young woman, and the um, rebels had picked her up and taken her with them. And she was imprisoned and became the sort of sex slave companion of the guy who was running the prison, which in a way saved her because he occasionally took her into his own house at night. Mm. And one night while she was, he was sleeping, she managed to escape and she ran into the bush and was running and walking for a long time and then found people who managed to take her to the city, back to the city, where she made her way to friends of her father. Um, so friends um, who were in a position of being able to give her some money and got her into the hands of somebody who could smuggle her out of the country and into mm. the UK. And once, when she got to the UK, she didn't speak English, but she thought, OK, I've come to a safe place here. But like so many of the women we meet... She received no support on entry into the UK. She had a terrible lawyer who never collected the evidence. She so she was refused asylum. When I met her, she was homeless. She had no right to stay in the UK. So she had no right to any support, no right to work. She was just living completely destitute and homeless on the streets of London, literally walking from one end of London to another to find places to stay, doorsteps to sleep on, charities to beg from. And while living in that way, she had become pregnant because a guy in the one of the churches she went to had said, oh, come home with me for a few nights. And yeah. she again, had been forced into sex and become pregnant. And she went on living in the streets until she was eight months pregnant, until she could literally walk no further. And when I met her, she'd been taken into hospital. How did you meet her? Through a community worker who had met her in hospital and was trying to find her a place to stay. And so I interviewed her about her experiences. And this amazing community worker, Raya Feldman, who became one of our founding trustees, Um, managed to get her a decent lawyer and Angelique got refugee status immediately the evidence was properly presented you know there was no it was an open and shut asylum case once the the evidence was there but I just thought you know I've been a feminist writing about women's issues for many years writing about women in the UK traveling to places where women's rights are particularly under threat I traveled to Afghanistan to Saudi Arabia And it seemed to me that this was a real gap, that women like Angelique were falling through these holes in international protections. Had she been uh, shut up in any of the detention centres? She hadn't. She had just fallen through the net completely. And I just felt if people heard these stories, women would want to make a change, would want to stand up for women like Angelique. And so... I felt very strong, you know, I wanted to write about her story, but I was also very aware that if I just wrote a piece about this in The Guardian, you know, how far would it go? I just felt very stirred up and angry. So I just, all that we did at first in terms of trying to create a project was I linked up with some 
people I knew working for other refugee organizations. And all we did, first of all, was we created an event. I just thought, I want to bring it to life. I want to see people's faces when they hear Angelique's story, rather than just having this go out in the newspaper. So I worked with um, some wonderful women at other charities. I wrote to people that I didn't even know who came forward and supported, including Juliette Stevenson, the actress, who um, stepped up and read one of the stories. I think she read Angelique's story at the event. I just got in touch with a lot of women in positions of influence, um, women I'd met through media days, um, women I knew in politics. Una King, the MP, opened You know, Jenny Murray was in the audience. I wanted to connect those women like Angelique, who were completely voiceless and powerless, with women that might be in a position to listen and take their stories on. And Caroline, honestly, when we organised the event, I thought I was organising an event. That's what I thought. That's what I said to everyone. I'm going to organise an event. I want you to come along. I want you to hear these stories. And the idea that actions, you know, we had obviously a handout, actions you can take. It was about supporting existing charities and spreading the word about women. I suppose, looking back, there were quite a lot of you know, middle-class lefties in the room. But I felt, yeah, it's these are great women, but they're not yet speaking up for refugees. Mm. Do you know what I mean? They're speaking up for other women, for British women, or they're speaking up for women in far-flung countries. What we need to connect up is those women in far-flung countries are also here living among us and need support now. And I really want to be able to put pressure on MPs to try and push for an end to this these policies of forced destitution and detention, which we'll come on to. And I I honestly, hand on heart, thought this is a lot of work, mm. but it's great. You know, I'm really enjoying doing it, but mm. it's a one-off. Mm-hmm. And it was in the aftermath of the event when I also joined up with quite a lot of refugee women that I was meeting, and so not just Angelique, but other women I was meeting through other organisations. There were quite a lot of, at that time, quite... Um, very politically aware women from Anglophone Africa, so from Uganda, Kenya, Zimbabwe, particularly actually from Zimbabwe and Uganda, which of course were facing particular conflicts, civil conflicts at the time, um, and women fleeing from those with experience of gender-based violence that weren't being listened to. Um, And they were very keen, spoke at this event, were sort of keen to do more to try and raise awareness. A lot of them had been refused asylum or had been waiting years for decisions. In limbo. Just in total limbo. And tell me a little bit more about the other refugee charities, because as you'll know, there's so much of a feeling across our society that there are too many charities and why Mm. set up another one? So you contacted some of those refugee charities Mm. to help you with the event. Yeah. And and did you find... did you find that any of them were already doing this work with women? Or did you? Clearly, well, you must have felt there was a gap. As I say, I worked with women from other charities mm. to, to set up the initial event. And they were also my co founder, therefore, Women for Refugee Women, Sarah Cutler, was working at an existing charity, Bell for Immigration Detainees, at the time. And she worked with me to set up that event and also to set up the initial project after that. Um, but I, working as a journalist, I had become extremely disillusioned with the way that the existing refugee charities approached communications. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to voice quite strong criticism. However, I think that's changed. And in the last 10 years, partly because of what we've been doing at Women for Refugee Women, but also what other individuals and organizations have done, 
That has really changed. But at the time, 13 years ago, it was shocking the way that refugee charities in the UK approached communications. Was it a lack of skills or was it fear? It was fear and it was a patronising and I think often quite a racist attitude towards the refugees and asylum seekers they were trying to help, Mm. which was they were not prepared to give them agency or pass leadership onto them or treat them as adults, as They were always beneficiaries. They were always clients. And so they would provide sort of prepared and controlled case studies, but would not follow refugee and asylum seekers' lead in communications. And it just made it very difficult for journalists to tell honest stories and to get to the honest truth and the urgency of what was going wrong in asylum policy. And I'm sure it was done out of the best of motives in that we want to protect these very vulnerable people. But it ended up having this effect that refugees and asylum seekers were being treated as though they couldn't make their own decisions about what stories they wanted to tell. And it takes a lot of resourcing, as you know. It does. And it can be very slow. And I think at the time when we started Women for Refugee Women, funders were a bit unsure about what all that resource was going into. But I remember in those sort of first six months after the event and before we set up as an organisation, I went to a round table organised by funders. And I remember one of the big refugee charities saying oh, but we can't include refugee and asylum se- refugees and asylum seekers in a lot of these conversations and this work because it's so expensive and we'd literally have to pay their expenses to come to every meeting. And I thought, so we pay their expenses to come to every meeting. And it was like a light bulb moment for me that you cannot work effectively and authentically with people who are destitute, yes. <laughs> so vulnerable, unless you're prepared to step up and say yes for every meeting there will be budget for people's expense so we have always at women for refugee women when we have meetings there is always budget for refugees and asylum seekers to sit around the table and we're lucky now that i think a lot of funders have come along this journey with us um, and recognize the importance of this so that we can present honest budgets Mm. and so i think it's just It is about prioritising and about trying to find new models. I'm not saying in any of these conversations, Caroline, that we've always got it right. We've got a lot of things wrong. It's a learning journey for us at Women for Refugee Women, for me personally, um, for everyone. And I just feel it's important, though, that we're honest about what it takes after the event. So I ran the event and really felt, okay, there was this hunger, there was this excitement in the room. People were saying, we're not hearing these stories. There was a lot of pickup and interest. And I just... Oh, yeah. So I did go and talk to other refugee charities at that point and said, even before the event, I said, here I am. You might know my byline from the Guardian Observer. If not, here's some examples of my work. I do a lot with refugees and asylum seekers and women. I'm a passionate feminist. I want to do more work in this area. Can I talk to you about any work I can do with you? What can I do with you? What can I, you know, I was brazen and I asked for meetings with people and went in and offered my help you know, had ideas that and I wanted to put to them and just got the brush and off. That's and crazy. Your skills and experience would be just to die for. Well, I don't know about that, but I just wanted to do what I could to help, yeah. you know, and to say and to talk to them about ways. Why did they not take you up on that? Offer? I don't know. I don't know. It's... So, anyway, but I they, feel coming as an outsider, you know, there are other priorities, other work, and 
But Maybe. anyways, that's what I really wanted to do. I had this idea I'd go and alongside being a journalist, yeah. do some sort of advisory work. I wasn't asking to be paid yeah. for it. You so know? you never at this stage, you weren't thinking, oh, I'm going to no. set up a new organisation no. and a new charity. I had no idea of a career change. That was the furthest thing from my mind. I was very, very happy working as a journalist. I had a contract with The Guardian and Observer and I was very happy working yeah. like that. But it sort so. of took off and I <laughs> felt I couldn't let it go. And we started off, the very first grant we brought in was from the Barry Cadbury Trust, who Ooh. sort of took a punt, really, yeah. on this new, we were then unconstituted. So we just had a document, um, I can't even remember actually at what stage, but we definitely weren't a registered charity mm. at that stage. And you think you, you hadn't set up as a company? Or no, anything no, like that. So no. So we were just, so a, project were, we were just a project with an ambition. Yeah. And it was me and, as I said, this group of quite politically aware refugee women. And because I was nervous at that time of promising too much, yes. what I suggested at that point to the refugee women was that would be two distinct groups an asylum-seeking women's group uh-huh. that would meet and discuss and, you know, think about how to get involved in campaigning. And, and I would help raise money for that. To changing legislation. Exactly. Okay. And then Women for Refugee Women, the name was already there from the event, where we'd work more on media work and advocacy, telling stories, connecting to the media, you yeah. know, thinking about skills training and yeah. stuff. Like that. So we were thinking in that sort of trying to do it as a sort of double thing together. Then as time went on, as I say, I brought in a grant from Barra Cadbury. It was still just me and then some volunteers. And then I think a year later, we took on a second staff member. There were changes going on in my life as well. I got a contract to write a book. And so I took leave of absence from The Observer Uh to write the book. So in theory, you had a bit more time. So in theory, I had a bit more time and it started to grow and it just began to take over. And the book got written. And the book got written. Just tell us quickly, in case people want to order it. Yeah, so the book is Living Dolls and it's about the return of sexism or the (laughs) resurgence of a sexism that never went away Mm. in the UK. But it was very much UK based. So Living Dolls is about... Um, how girls in the UK struggle with the hypersexual culture around them. And it was also about the resurgence of biological determinism and how girls try and fit themselves into this sort of very feminine mould. So I was working on that, loving it, enjoying it. But that, yeah, that gave me the freedom as well to work. The big change in your life gave you a little bit of freedom. Yeah. And then... And then we decided to register as a charity. Right. Um, My co-founder at Women for Refugee Women, Sarah Cutler, moved on. And we had a wonderful chance of a fantastic chair who who came on called Maggie Baxter, who was the ex-director of Womankind Worldwide. I didn't know Maggie had been chair. Incredible supporter, as you might know, Caroline. She loves new projects. She's one of these people that... She never loses her vision, her desire for change, but she understands what it takes to embed something in a sort of genuine doing culture. You know, you're not just dreaming, but you're also doing. So she was very grounding for us. Maggie's part of the Social Founder Network, actually, as the founder of Rosa. Yes, of course. And she she was at that time thinking very much about Rosa because she'd just left Womankind Worldwide. So she was talking to me about Rosa and I was talking to her about Women for Refugee Women. And... 
So she became our chair. So you had a tremendous support there. From, a huge from support. Your, such a wonderful I don't woman. think we could have done them what we went on to do without Maggie. She enabled me to see how to stay true to this vision that I had of being of an organisation that would be authentically driven by the lives, the concerns, the stories of refugee and asylum-seeking women and still able to connect into the media and into the advocacy yeah. side. And she really helped me think that through. She took time to sit down with me, work through the vision of the organisation, um, think about how to constitute as a charity, yeah. the kind of trustee, but, you know, all those things you have to think about. It was so wonderful having, having her, having her yeah. there. And I... You know, we just owe her an enormous debt because she had done it herself. Because she's also, as well as running organisations, she's also been a grant maker. And so she could also advise brilliantly on how to raise funds, again, while being authentic. Because I think it's quite scary for a new organisation, particularly for me, you know, never having worked in the charity world or in NGOs, about funders' expectations. And she was so great at giving me the confidence just to be honest about the vision that we had for the organisation. You know, really being truthful and not trying to couch it in that sort of language you think the funders want to hear. You know, That's such great advice. It was so, so useful for me because I... And also it's she quite must nerve-wracking, have... as you know, when you first start getting your grants in and you start thinking about... Are you going to be pushed off course yeah. when you look at the way the funders' expectations run, you know, and just being... Yeah, it's all about honesty and communications. And I think maybe we'll talk a bit more about further along about that sort of slightly difficult relationship once a charity really gets going. And how you take it to the next stage. Yeah. And did Maggie also presumably must have helped you have real clarity about the gap that you were filling exactly women, exactly and that and not having to go into another organization and set up a project exactly but to actually create a new brand and a new organization yes. with this very specific focus i had this huge certainty that what we were doing working with this intersection of feminism and the refugee experiences was new, you know, was different from what other organisations were doing. I'm not saying that nobody was working on women's issues in refugee charities. You know, the Asylum May had a very successful women's project and Deborah Singer, who ran it, was also one of our founding trustees. And that helped us to keep clear the difference between the way that we worked and the way that they worked. And was the third pillar... The media, then, so yeah. what, the refugee women, the, refugee the feminist women, approach, exactly. empowering women, giving them a voice, and then the media, mm. that you are such an expert. Mm. I just want to ask you something about, um, going back to Sarah, your co-founder, who left. How did that feel? Because our, in our founder network, people have a real mixed uh, feeling about co-founders, and sometimes they want a co-founder, and sometimes they don't, and sometimes they have a co-founder, but then they fall out. Other times it's a fantastic partnership and a great support for each other. I'd say on the whole, unlike the corporate sector, the commercial startup sector, there are very few co-founders in the charity sector. Mm. Did you feel we quite never scared fell out? On your, on your we own? never fell out. We we were always good friends. We're good friends to this day. And Sarah went to the refugee council, so we were still in the same field. But I think 
Do you feel nervous on your own? No, you, I think that? Sarah was just incredibly busy. She was incredibly busy in her own work and her family life. And it just didn't make sense for her to try and do it. And, then, you know, in a way, because I wanted to devote more and more time to it and started to stop being a journalist and be, you know, and do Women for Refugee Women, it made sense. So it was always very amicable and it's been lovely, really, because I feel I can sometimes bounce things off her. You know, we can talk about issues in the sector um, more broadly. And I think we still really see eye to eye about what's important. We never fell out in terms of values. That's so important. If we'd had... If we both wanted to take Women for Refugee Women forward, but with different values, I think that would have been hard and hurtful for me. But her view was, it's great, it's a great, 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 great project, but I need to get on with the things that I'm doing, my job, my family life. So I'm going to, don't want to be half-hearted about this, so I'll move away, you know, and I think that's... That's interesting. Really great. great, Going back to you then, you... Was it a sudden realisation that this was going to be the next stage of your life, being director, or did it... It was so, 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 so slow, Caroline, that even sometimes now I'm I'm quite puzzled. (laughs) You know, people say to me, what do you do? And I say... Well, I'm a right. Well, I run a charity, and I, you know, and I still feel as though I'm both things. So it was well. never a, a decision for me. But I couldn't have done it without Maggie, as I say. I couldn't have done it without the refugee women that came into the organisation, and particularly my colleague Mark Jugirma, who joined ten years ago now. It's a and long she, time for her to be with yes. you still. So she came in as grassroots coordinator mm-hmm. to really develop the work we were doing with refugee and asylum-seeking women at the grassroots because we realised we couldn't do the sort of model that we'd start with, which was that there'd be this sort of self-help group of women asylum seekers that we'd be working with, that we need to really work much harder at the grassroots to support women, often very vulnerable women, often very resilient women, often very inspiring women, often very talented women, but we really needed to put a lot more resources into the activities with refugee women and then supporting them through pathways in order to empower them to really lead our communications work and our advocacy work. So Marju Girma, who herself has a refugee background, um, came into the organisation 10 years ago, has developed her role amazingly, is now the deputy director and really... We run the organisation together now. So Everything we bounce off each other. Yeah. She's amazing. And I yeah. think this organisation, you know, what Women for Refugee Women is now, the way it's so connected to the voices and lives of refugee women is because of the work that March has done with colleagues, you know, really developing that side yeah. of our work. And so I think... When I talk about myself as a founder, people go, oh, it's so wonderful what you do at Women for Refugee Women. Of course, people aren't going to voice criticism to my face, so it's supposed <laughs> to be that, you know. I often I've say, never heard any criticism I, of your organisation. I often sort of feel like I'm so embarrassed because I think it's so much in the early days, you know, I had an amazing board of trustees and then Marchu, when she came in, she really shaped the organisation alongside me and I feel... That's so, so important for yep. the organisation. So I just really want to make it clear that it's not a sort of sole trader thing. You know, Women for Refugee Women is it's lots of women working together. And it, I think the thing that makes me happiest is when I hear colleagues saying, we, you know, 
But this isn't the way that we do it. Or, but shouldn't we be thinking more about this? And I think it's the we, the organisation that has strong values and the women that have come in to work or volunteer or join activities have the strong sense of the values that we have as well. And, you know, it's a so great it's a, feeling. It's a real team. And it's a real uh, your team. board is very mixed as well, isn't it? Got a yeah. lot of different skills and experience on the board. Absolutely. Is, right. That whole thing of, of the founder, making sure that you've got very strong staff, very strong mm. board around you, is very reassuring for external funders, for even media stories as well. Yeah. And how, I mean, your, your brand is very high, though, your individual brand as well as the organisation's brand. Has that ever got in the way or is it just purely yes. an asset? No, I think it has got in the way. I think it's can be problematic that there's a white middle class, you know, Oxbridge educated woman with a media background leading an organisation that is about the experiences of refugee and asylum seeking women. Mm. And I think that people who are leaders in this sector have to be honest about that. And that's why I think it's so important that we do share power. And that's, you know, that's what we do do at Women for Refugee Women. And I want to do more of that yeah. because I think, it, it, of course, of course, it's an issue. It's an if issue. If the organisation also... achieves anything, you know, it's not because of me. It's because of the refugee women in it. So I think it's very, very important. I think it's a real that. challenge, actually, for founders, because your, your skills and your presence and your media knowledge and your access to connections is so powerful for the organisation that you know it probably wouldn't exist without that with all the skills and experience that you brought to it as well as your passion and vision but getting the balance right is terribly difficult and it and it's a real issue when founders decide that they do, they want to move away or step down or stop being the, the the face of the organization yes but i also think we can overstate that the power of the individual in this field i mean i often feel that there is a tendency in our society as a whole sometimes to overstate that. So I had the time, I had the wherewithal, the support from home, the support from networks to take that step of setting up. But organisations don't stay and they don't remain authentic and they don't do the work well unless the power is shared. I feel that very strongly. And I feel that more and more as time goes on because I do think... If it had all been about me, the organisation would have died long ago. Yep. It's because it's about lots of us and because we're now working much more around a model of movement building, so not just on a single campaign, but thinking about how we as an organisation network with other organisations working in the intersection of the women's movement and the migration movement and what we can do in order to see more refugee women's leadership you know yeah. and really yeah it's a more resilient way of working that I've seen shared. I've seen a big change in your organization that you seem to be working much more in partnership now mm. which is really great and is that part of the vision that you have to to, to campaign to change legislation yes. to change attitudes yes is, is that- yes and also I do think like I say when I set up women for refugee women it was partly out of anger Anger at, you know, the Home Office, obviously, and I'm still angry at the Home Office for not um, treating women fairly and with dignity, but also anger at the rest of the sector. I sort of thought, come on, wake up, wake up. This is urgent. We have to tell these stories better. I think, as I say, I think there's been a lot of changes in the wider refugee sector and the wider women's sector. And in funders And in funders. And so I think working collaboratively is much 
it just happens much more now for us. Mm-hmm. There are a lot more organisations around that share our values and we share theirs and that's about the journey we've been on as well as the journey that others have been on we've learned a lot they've learned things have changed you know how do you juggle your own time you're trying to support directly support Mm. 100 women a week you say are coming in you're trying to campaign you're trying to get voice into uh, presumably as widely as possible in the media as we talked about earlier how do you personally manage your time you have a child two children I have two children Yeah. yeah I think these are two different things. So one is how do I manage the time of the organization? And one thing that I've realized, and for anyone who's thinking of setting up or has set up an organization, I'd say this very strongly. One thing I've realized is that as an organization grows, a lot of the decisions you're taking is not what to do, but what not to do. (laughs) That it's very, very important not to be pulled off course all the time. And I have quite a sort of... I like to tell a strong story for the organization, and I do that through, you know, things like talking to you, but also reporting to funders, the annual report, but also when we're planning our strategy. We need a strong story, you know, we need to kind of know what the story is we're telling and our theory of change, you know. We need to know how we're doing that. And having settled on that, having said what we are planning to do, Obviously, that can change, you know, as we see new opportunities or new challenges that we want to fight against. It's really important not to be blown off course by everything that every sort of member of the team sort of thing. Oh, that might be a great idea. You've got to be able to say, yes, but our focus this term is on X. We mustn't lose sight of the destitution campaign. And, you know, that's such great advice. Sometimes it's enabling your colleagues Mm -hmm. to say no as well. You know, you've got to help them prioritise and say, okay, yeah, it sounds great that so-and-so is asking you to do that. Lovely. I know you wanted to talk to them last year and they weren't interested then. Now they want to talk. However, the select committee deadline is next week and we thought that was a really important opportunity. So let's concentrate on that. And just sort of enabling those decisions. It sounds kind of boring that in a way you're sort of process in a way it's it's process but it's also I feel that I can be that for my colleagues I can see the wood and they're often moving through the trees so you know what I mean it's very important to me to do that story at the beach so we do it quite a lot in staff meetings we sort of sit down and say okay so what are we working on and what you know what was what are we aiming for here sort of sharing where we're going in the different campaigns or activities so that's vital, and that's how we manage the time as an organisation. So with quite a lot of internal discussion and me being the person that will kind of keep really reflecting helpful. that really, story really back advice. to people. Really helpful advice. And uh, presumably helps you also as a founder look back to those yeah. original purposes, why you set up exactly. the organisation and where, how far ahead you yeah. might be thinking as well. How far ahead do you think out of interest? About three years, mm. three to five mm. years. And I would say that's probably one reason as well, because I like sort of holding that story, that I've kept up as director a, a lot of the fundraising. So I do quite a lot of the discussions with funders, reporting to funders or, you know, speaking at fundraising things. It's not because I love talking about money. I hate it. But it's because I think it sort of keeps us... It's like practising, you know, making sure that we're all joined together on what it is we're doing. Um, In terms of my personal time, it's difficult. I mean, I think I've become better 
at ensuring that it doesn't spill into every hour of my life. I've had to become better at it. At times, obviously, it has, particularly in the early days. Yeah. Particularly when we were starting to campaign around detention, I got very sucked into that, very personally involved with a lot of the women we were working with, personally involved in a lot of the media work and the storytelling. It was just a huge... It was, you know, in, so all-encompassing for me. And I lived, I slept, I breathed it all the time. I remember those days. Yeah. And I think it's very. It's a common thing for most founders and it can be yeah. very damaging yes. because you can't have the perspective and you exactly. can't sit back from it. But what, I think you, for me... What made you change that? The two things that mean I can't do that is, one, I am still a writer. And so I finished Living Dolls after I set up Women for Every Women, but I also wrote a novel yeah. while I... After I set up Women for Refugee Women, I have a 10-year-old son as well as an 18-year-old daughter. So I had a baby since I set up Women for Refugee oh, Women. So all these things mean that I've had to... I've had other things yeah. that mean as much to me. And so I have this other life. And I have to... I've seen with my colleagues, I have to remind them it's okay to step back. And I feel... Because I have children, when I go home, I'm immediately back in their world. And, you know, that's homework and party thing and so gorgeous. And it's so, you know, it's just wonderful. I'm so lucky to have that. So I naturally will step away. And and I I really carefully protect my holidays and my weekends, you know. And so I just encourage my colleagues, including those that don't have families, to see see the value of that, Mm -hmm. to make sure that we know we can switch off our phones, you know, that we can really take time to be that other person that we are when we're not at work. Sounds like you've got a really great balance of sort of looking at the big picture as well uh, as being able to spend time with your colleagues and with Mm. the refugee women that you're working with. Well, that's always what keeps me going, Caroline, because I really feel it's, um, you know... If I spend too much time at my desk doing the stuff that funders want or um, the stuff that the board wants, important as all that is, I do start to lose the joy of the work and the passion. And what always reconnects me to it is coming back and working with the refugee women. And it was interesting, about a year ago, I went through quite a a hard time in my own personal life um, following the death of my mother. And I was finding it quite hard to remain fully engaged with the work here. I think anyone who's been through bereavement knows what that's like. You know, the world does go a bit grey. And I was sort of going through the motions. I took some compassionate leave, but I was still quite lacking in energy. And I thought, I'm not being a great leader here. You know, I... Did you think about giving up at that stage? It was quite... For a time, I did. And what really Mm. reconnected me is it was something I didn't even set up. A colleague of mine set up a reading group um, as part of our Monday activities, a book group, so it was just a group of about 15 refugee women, obviously the ones with good English, sitting around a table, reading poetry, reading stories. It was supported by the publisher Hachette. And I, the colleague that set it up then couldn't go on facilitating it, so I started to facilitate it. And honestly, it just meant so, so much to me to sit there. You know, I studied English at university. I was a critic for a long time. And then we'd read together some poem by Maya Angelou. And the refugee women's responses were just 
unbelievable what they saw in the language, what they saw in the imagery, how it resonated completely differently for them. Than it, you know, so many sort of nuances and resonances that they would pick up that I thought it sort of brought together all the things I cared about, you know, about feminism, yeah. about working with women whose voices aren't heard and about the power of literature and poetry. And it sort of gave me back a lot of hope, so really. Hope, and but also your drive came it, back again. My drive and, came and back, and that was and, a big part of it, yeah. I think. And, and yet it it's to... not something that was even... We probably didn't even mention the reading group in our annual report. Do you know what I mean? We probably didn't even mention it in any report to funders. It was a small thing, you know, I think that, that was, that's such that was good... just supported in an in-kind basis. That's by such Hachette, helpful advice. You know? It's a helpful story, I think, to anybody who is starting to grow their organisation because we hear that again and again and again about the, the slog of the management side of things as it gets bigger. Mm. So to reconnect and to stay really in touch with mm. the very people that you're trying to support. And I think particularly at a time as well politically because that's the other thing that I found very challenging over the last year or two so first of all I faced the challenges in my family life with the you know the loss of someone very close to me and who'd been very much part of the journey you know who'd always loved to hear about the work and so it was very hard How lovely you know, to have to, that support yes, at home actually to reconnect but also these are very difficult political times for me and I as they are for many people working in these fields. I feel that progress on certain areas that I felt I wasn't taking for granted, but, you know, we felt we were getting somewhere on quite a lot of fronts, that with the election of Trump, with Brexit, with the rise of xenophobia yep. and racism more in the mainstream, with this very polarised political times, and now this sort of political stasis, which is so frustrating for campaigners. You know, we've learned a lot about how seeming breakthroughs can actually also contain seeds of strange backlashes that we didn't see coming. I think these are quite dangerous times and can feel quite dark. And I don't want to overstate that. I don't want to say, you know, it feels like the 1930s and some of my friends do. I don't think it does. But I think these are very dark times and the women that we work with are really facing the brunt of the hostile environment of this rise of xenophobia, this uncertainty. And it's very, that can be very, very difficult. And so again, sometimes I find it hard to take the kind of straightforward pleasure I used to take in the campaigning work because I'm finding it hard to really see the results. And change is very, very slow, isn't it? Exactly. And Um, so reconnecting again to the grassroots work is very important to me. I should say that this sort of pessimism that I'm voicing isn't shared by all my colleagues. And I was struck recently we were in a meeting with a supporter and I was voicing some of this, you know, my feelings about the political times, the challenges we face. And my colleague, Marchu, who, as I say, is a refugee herself and works closely with refugee women, said, yes, but we're seeing more strength of the grassroots than ever before, more refugee women ready to speak out. We're building a movement and we will be ready when the political times are more conducive to change. And I think there is truth in that. And we do have to hold on to that, that we are here for the long haul. I don't necessarily mean me, you know, I could go. It's not about me being here forever. But I think that the work that we do with refugee women will stay through this challenging political time and when things do become more open and we can make change again 
more easily, I think we're going to be ready, and that's very important. Because I was very inspired by an article you wrote uh, recently where you used the word hope and hopefulness a lot mm. and I thought how wonderful I can't wait to come and interview Natasha <laughs> to hear about and now you're hearing your the time now that <laughs> feeling quite pessimism. challenged yeah I mean your organization for me symbolizes hope and hopefulness and positivity and determination to change and I think uh, I think if you can tap into young people mm that will be really wonderful as well. Do you sometimes think of, you know, could you create a movement that's almost like you know, Me Too or Greta around rights for all women, but, but for refugee women in particular? Is that something yes, that I, you sometimes look at doing with schools? Or? Yes, I mean, we don't work enough with younger women. It's partly because younger asylum-seeking and refugee women, of course, can still access mainstream education. I think we don't do enough with younger women and we are definitely looking to do more. And, you know, I am excited. You know, we have wonderful young volunteers coming through, young women who organise events and fundraisers for us. And, you know, that's fantastic to see their passion and their desire for change. And so I think you're right. that I mean, I am still hopeful that change will come. I think it's been very difficult, though, over the last couple of years we've got to hold on we've got to hold in there but if we feel this hope it definitely comes I think from younger generations and from you know those people who they haven't got the luxury of giving up you know the refugee women we work with they can't just give up they've got to fight for their immigration status they've got to fight for their security in this country they can't just give up you know what Mm. would giving up Mm. look like Mm. if you had one one wish is it a legal change? Is it an attitude change? What if you had, you know, the magic wand to wave in two years, three years, two months? I'd love people to be able to see beyond labels and stop seeing the refugee women as refugees, asylum seekers, migrants, and see them as women in their full humanity. I just feel that so often we tell stories that people aren't prepared to listen to still because they put labels on people. So it's a whole change of attitude that I'd like to see. So the media work stays forever really, really important for you. Absolutely. And and do you have a sense of how long you're going to continue doing this? I don't at the moment, no. I mean, like I say, I I didn't come into it with a plan to be here. And the need need is more and more important as well. Well, we hope you'll stay a really long time, Natasha. Thank you so much. It's been such a privilege to share the story. Is there anything else that you, that that we haven't talked about. There must be so much. I know I'd love There's to ask so you more questions. There's so much I'd love but... to talk about in terms of the issues that we work on and the work that we do. But I hope that anybody listening, if they feel that they're passionate about something and that other people aren't doing enough, it's just to get stuck in there, you know, to just try what they can. Yes, just start with an event with your friends, with your contacts or a small project or just spreading the word and then see where it takes you, where, where the need is. And I think... Finding supporters on that journey, working in a network, is is absolutely vital. So that's what I suppose I'd like to underline. Well, that's thank lovely. You. On that note, Natasha, thank you so much. And I'm sure you will have inspired loads of listeners and uh, to, to follow in your footsteps as well, because you're a real inspiration to all of us. Many, many thanks and congratulations on everything you've achieved as well. Thank you so much. That's it for today. Thanks so much for listening to Social Founder Stories. I'll really look forward to your feedback. Do subscribe to the podcast. We have some fantastic guests coming up. 
Social Founder Stories is brought to you by the Social Founder Network in association with Kiva, the Center for Innovation in Voluntary Action. You can find out more about Kiva and support their innovative work at www.kiva.org.uk. Thank you.